in the words of Jay-Z, you're now tuned in to the motherfucking greatest. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 17 of All The Way Through, the podcast journeying through the Louis Theroux back catalogue to work out whether we love him as much as we thought we did. My name is Matthew Dunn-Miles and I'm joined by Alex Watson. Hello, Alex. Hello. Wild Matthew and suave Alex in the house. Oh, why do you get to be suave and I have to be wild? (laughs) Sorry, you can be suave if you want. It's done now. That is a fetching bowler hat that you have on. Oh, thank you. Coupled with your No Limit chain. I enjoy your Stars and Stripes bandana. Thank you very much. It's nice of you to notice. And maybe if you're dedicated enough to the cause, you will eventually earn a No Limits medallion like mine. If you didn't guess from my explicit intro, this episode is probably one of the most famously talked about of Weird Weekends. It's the last episode of Weird Weekends ever, which feels like a big deal for us because we've been doing this for a long time now. And it is rap. Louis is, for the final time, going to try and take on the lifestyle of a gangster rapper. And that's very much specifically what it is, isn't it? It's gangster rap that Louis is hoping to explore more than just general rap because general rap had some sort of mainstream appeal by this point 2000 outcast have released stankonia which is one of their biggest albums and one of the biggest hip-hop albums of all time 2001 by dr dre came out earlier than the year 2001 he didn't plan that very well terrible marketing it was the era of hip-hop pop crossover tlc obviously rapped as well eminem was probably gearing up putting in his peroxide preparing himself But Louis is interested in what he describes as an extreme style of gangster rap that mirrors violent ghetto life in America's so-called Dirty South. So I think we often think of either New York or California, and those are the two places where rappers live and they fight with each other and there's a lot of beef going back over the years there. But apparently there's this massive scene for it in the South as well, which isn't really talked about as much which I assume is why Louis decided to go there. The opening scene, we see Louis instantly getting involved. He's walking down the street. There's a car that's driving down the road. There's a frog and there's a little toad. Guaranteed that after watching this episode, you will have one of these little Louis sound bites in your head for a long, long time. He has a very characteristic Louis crisis of confidence where he then says, I'm actually just making stuff up. Is that allowed? Which is the kind of crux of the whole episode. Can you rap about stuff if you don't do it? And that comes up again and again. We cut to New Orleans, Louisiana. We get some shots of the streets. There's kids playing under fire hydrants. There's people playing basketball. Feels very much like the opening scenes of The Wire. This is the Dirty South, as it is called. And Louis sets out his stall early. He wants to make it as the first white, middle-class gangster rapper. He's also driving in his typical soccer mom van, which I sort of now realise just needs to be big enough for the whole crew. But it really doesn't add to his gangster personality that he's going for. Of course that's why it has to be so big. I've never really clocked that before. I just thought he had a penchant for large, sensible, safe vehicles. Fair play to him if he does. Our first stop in Louisiana is Forefront Entertainment, which Louis describes as a rap label specialising in hardcore. And they seem to be set up in almost like a motel building, those very classic American motel buildings. It's very blank inside and quite empty. Yeah, there's nothing really in there. Nothing screams rap. It's very DIY, which I think is the kind of key to this scene. These are people doing it for themselves, making the music they want to make. So first person we see is Cutie Pie, who is a young black woman. She has no shoes on. She stood in a recording booth and she is doing her thing into the mic, which is some incredibly aggressive rap. She has this really husky voice when she raps. It is very aggressive. <laughs> 
I smell something that smells like fish. Take that shit raw. Get your wig split. Grab your dick. Bitches pussy whip. And Louis introduces himself to her as she's in the booth rapping, which seems slightly rude, but okay, Louis. And she switches to her normal higher pitched, sweeter sounding voice and says, oh, I'm just in the middle of recording right now. And then (laughs) goes back to this gravelly rapping. Goes back to lyrics about pulling balls out of people's throats. This is really funny because Louis is peering round the corner, almost like he's a little bit intimidated by what he's seeing. Louis says, picking up on some of the lines in Kitty Pie's song. Did you say you're going to give someone a ghetto rep to me? Oh. Yeah, what is that? (laughs) And then very calmly, she replies. I'm going to give them a ghetto rep to me, pull their balls out through their throat. Have them sucking on their own dick like Lewinsky on the Clinton love book. I mean, nowadays he could have just looked on Urban Dictionary for that definition and saved himself an awkward question. He basically doesn't react. He's just like, okay. Louis asks about Cutie Pie's gruff rapping voice. Is it tough on her vocal cords? Doesn't it hurt? And she says, nah, she's used to it. She's been doing it since she was about 13 or 14. I don't think we know how old she is, but I'd put her in her mid-20s. Yeah, I'd say mid-20s, but it is hard to kind of grasp what age she is. Louis admits that he wants to get involved in the rap scene. He says, I like some rap. Don't we know it, Louis? You secret hip-hop head. Yeah, he really plays down how much he likes rap. He doesn't want to seem too keen straight away. Cutie Pie immediately invites him into the booth, says, come on, let's see what you've got. And Louis's quite nervous. And then the camera turns to a guy who shouts over helpfully. Which is important advice in all times. So then we cut back to Louis. He's in the booth with Cutie Pie and he's delivering her rap, essentially, doing her lines. And she's giving him pointers on delivery. Doesn't seem completely happy with his timing. And she's kind of like clapping him in. Yeah, I don't know how Louis's rhythm is. I'm not sure it's that great. Spoiler alert for the listeners. Alex actually clapped me into every episode we edit it out we have a click track on every single podcast episode yeah it's almost like a rap it's not it's nothing like a rap so louis is doing cutie pie's rap but he's substituting certain words i definitely heard a melon farmer in there instead of a motherfucker so he's clearly kind of censoring it for bbc tastes We cut to a different room and Louis is speaking to Cutie Pie about her career goals. And he kind of asked the question, what would you do if someone said to you you'd sell more records if you went a bit softer? Cutie Pie's instant reaction is, no, that can't happen. That's not me. That's whack, actually. It's good to see whack is still getting used in the year 2000. They go to an edit room with mixing desks and computers. And obviously it's the 90s, so all the computers are white and they look like little cubes. They meet a guy called Sparky who's sitting at the editing desk. He was talking to Louis through the headphones when Louis was in the booth. So he's obviously been recording what Cutie Pie was singing. Sparky's got on a white fitted t-shirt, a white shirt over the top of that, a big chain, cornrows as well. He shakes Louis's hand and he says, oh, you did good. Your rapping was good. Cutie instantly steps in and says, I had to clap him in, by the way. I kind of feel like Sparky was being polite anyway. Louis speaking to Sparky and he says, quite hardcore about the standard of the rapping. And Sparky says, that's life. And they discuss gangster rap in general. And Louis says, it's got certain connotations. But Sparky and QT seem very well spoken. And Sparky kind of says, you know, I went to college. And Louis says, you did four years? Yes, I did four years. You can understand why he's a little bit defensive about this conversation. It does seem a bit sort of loaded and it maybe wouldn't be okay to ask these things now. And then Cutie Pie says as well, she went to college. But then she says to Louis, My middle class and your middle class, totally different. 
That's the key thing here, I think. Politicians always talk about people achieving the American middle class, but the definition that's really vague and depending on the class model used, that could be anything from 25% of the American population to 66% of the American population. So that's a really vast scale. Some of the definitions seem to be about household income, whereas in Britain, the rules about class are so complicated and ridiculous. And actually, we don't really seem to understand them ourselves in Britain anymore. No, it's a constant conversation because it's not really about the amount of money you earn. It's also about the job, the school, your parents' jobs, all these sorts of things tie into how people see their class. The revelation about Forefront is that they also produce hardcore gangster porn films alongside their rap and the two go quite closely hand in hand. QT and Louis go to meet the company director, who's a woman called Kim, in her office. She's quite glamorous. She has a sleek red tinted bob, strapless dress. She's sitting at her desk going through her file effects. It's so interesting as well that she is a woman kind of at the head of this company, especially where it's two industries or two sectors which are considered very regressive often when their attitudes towards women. Cutie Pie clearly has a very important role in this company and so does Kim. Yeah, I like that. And I know that you can't know really anything, but the vibe that I got from watching was that they were all very respectful of each other and they all collaborated. Kim and Louis talk about the porn and the rap working together. Kim says porn and sex have always been a part of hip hop culture, so it made sense to do them both together. Then Louis asks, so do the rappers do porn and the porn stars do rap? How does that work? And Kim says, well, at the moment we're filming a film called The Vicious Pussycat, which Cutie Pie is going to star in. And it's got the same title as her upcoming album and they're both going to be released at the same time. Cutie Pie stars in it, but she isn't going to perform the sex scenes or the hardcore sex scenes, I guess. Or maybe her character just doesn't have sex. I'm not sure. I assumed it was just her character didn't have sex. Like the sex would happen and she'd be, I've got other things to do now. And then they just zoom to a random window and then some people would have sex. (laughs) Yeah. We cut to another room which has all the posters of their different porn films on the wall and Louis loves to read out a porn title. Some of the titles include Ghetto Girls, Hot Black Southern Freaks, Black and Wild, Generation Triple X, Platinum Pussies and Louis comments that they're all black themed which means that they're starring black people I'm assuming. Cutie Pie says there's a real shortage of black adult entertainment films. I found an article from last year for Vice by a guy called Graham Isidore titled Black Porn Performers Call for Changes in Adult Industry including cut now agents and this was kind of in the wake of the whole black lives matter movement where a lot of porn stars and porn companies put out statements in solidarity with the black lives matter movement and a porn performer called lasha lane said ask almost any black woman in the porn world and you'll get the same answers less pay fewer roles racist titles dehumanizing tropes and less space for representation with agents and managers she said it's disheartening since a large percentage of porn studios profit from bipoc actors body types that look like ours or appropriating our culture Try watching porn with no hip-hop elements, big butts or twerking, dot, dot, dot. I'll wait. Which is a really interesting point and it kind of shows that this is not something that has been solved in the time that has passed since this documentary. What Cutie Pie is saying is we're making it for us. We know what we want to see. We know what black people want to see and we're going to get the money for it, which is smart. It's a smart business decision. They move to yet another room. There is another editing setup and we meet porn editor Dick McGee. (laughs) Is that a real name? I couldn't decide. I thought Louie might ask, but he didn't seem to. We find out Dick writes the scripts as well for all the porn scenes. And we get a sneak peek of the new film, The Vicious Pussycat. Louie comments on the unique combination of rap and porn. Louis is in the middle of talking he's like you're making things you'd like to see that's great and then does this kind of double comedy take and a scene of cupcake and snake 
comes on the screen, which is uh, far more graphic. The thing that gets me is Louis didn't want to say motherfucker on the BBC, but they'll show very graphic porn. Look, when you've got performers like Cupcake and Snake, you can't deny the people of Britain the chance to see them. So Cutie Pie is going to head to rehearsal for her film that they're still shooting and ask Louis if he wants to come along. They go in a red Land Rover. The rehearsal space that they're in is quite big and there's a large group of guys sat in the corner, some of whom we've already seen in the recording studio. Cutie Pie is running lines with another woman whose character name is Lex. And then a third woman comes along whose character name is Simone and pretends to shoot Lex in the head as part of the script. There's some kind of falling out that they're having. The plot gets quite complicated very quickly. Yeah. So Sparky's there and Louis says, Sparky, can you explain what's happening? And Sparky kind of starts explaining and then we just kind of cut away from that. So clearly it was like, mm, nah. I mean, this is more complicated than most porn plots of pizza delivery men. Like Dick McGee is writing some good scripts. A master of his generation in terms of porn writing is Dick McGee suddenly we cut to Satin. The character Simone is played by an actress called Satin and she's walking around with no top on. Louis, again, doing a big comedy double take, says, Spark, hmm? why did Satin just take her top off? And he explains that this is natural. Women are constantly walking around at home topless. That's so true. I can confirm. And then Louis says, but it's a bit sexy as well. And then him and Sparky agree that it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. Kim is there watching too, so it's a small, close-knit team, I guess. They all work together on everything. And then Louis, thrown off by seeing a lady topless, says that he's enjoyed his time at Forefront, but he feels like gangster rap is more about playing at being tough rather than actually being tough. So he wants to get into the real nitty-gritty of it. And the scene ends with Cutie Pie and one of the other actresses pointing guns at each other in a very Tarantino fashion. Would you like to know what happened to Cutie Pie? Yes, please. Well, she's actually quite difficult to track down. There's not a lot written about her online. Her stage name is Cutie Pie, spelled Q, T, and then the pie symbol, the mathematical symbol. Ooh. Yeah, I like that. The only kind of information I could really find about her was on a site called Dober World Blog, which is some ancient kind of blog spot site the description of it is doba presents louisiana rap and he's got a link to one of her tapes and he says this is from doba tight tape single from the girl who later rolled with forefront this one is produced by sparky who also did all the forefront stuff this is a ghost town records release so i think this is before we meet her later on forefront she was supposed to drop a cd called vicious pussycat but it never dropped oh no they never completed it louis cursed it So eventually she goes to change her stage name to Chaos in later years and she releases her last album on Forefront Records. It's called Liquid City and that's released in 2003. But after that, not a lot. There isn't any information about what she did next. Do we know if Forefront's still going? That seemed to be their last hurrah in 2003, I think. Oh man, we'll never find out what happened in that film. So Louis gets back into his mom van, driving past more houses. He's now in Jackson, Mississippi, and he's going to meet a gangster, an actual gangster, who's turning his back on crime to pursue a rap career. So he pulls up to a fairly normal looking house, and then there's this guy standing waiting for him. He's wearing a bowler hat, like I am, and he's wearing black suit trousers and a black waistcoat, a long sleeve white shirt, and a tie. Probably quite warm in Mississippi, I'd imagine. Roasting. And then a pair of sunglasses. He looks quite striking compared to everyone else just kind of in their shorts and t-shirts. He looks a bit like Mr. Ben before he goes into the fancy dress shop. He's not dressed as a knight or anything. Well, so he looks like a bored accountant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this guy 
guy's name is Mellow T. He shakes Louis's hand and says he's heard a lot about him. A few people say this in this episode. Is Louis's reputation now preceding him or are they just polite? I think they know he's in town and people are excited. Louis says, oh, you look very smart. And Mellow explains that this is his style and it's an international godfather gangster pimp style. So when you go to the shop, that's what you need to tell them and then they'll give you that outfit. It's also worldwide and international, which may be a contradiction in terms, but no, that's fine. We'll go with it. Louis then goes for one of his classic tricks, which is a tour of the house with Mello. He instantly walks through the door and says, this is nice, even though none of the lights are on and he's only just walked in the door, (laughs) which I found really funny. So this isn't Mello's house. This is a house that he's bought for one of his groups. So he says, oh, they like it dark. Okay. They get to this kind of, uh, it's almost like a garage, but I think it does have a partial outdoors. It's almost like a covered carport, just to be very specific, as though I'm someone's dad. That's got a couple of weightlifting benches set up. And he says, oh yeah, this is the workout room. They either work out here or in the prison yard. And that's when you realise the workout area is styled on a prison yard. It's got a large fence. Stick to what you know. So then Big D appears and Louis in the most English sentence ever says, Who's this gentleman right here? As if he's asking, what day is it, sir? It's Christmas day. I also just kind of for posterity want to let everyone know that Big D also wears a bowler hat. So he matches Mellow. It's quite sweet. Oh, maybe they're off to a Big Ben convention. Not Big Ben convention. (laughs) Mr. Ben convention. They just love large clocks. (laughs) It's all about the big time pieces. They kind of talk about why Mello's in the music scene. Mello explains that although he is in music, one of his number one economic contributors has been the pimp business, which he's been doing for the last four years, which he says very openly on camera. And Louis says, this is stuff you do now. And he says, right. He kind of explains that this is where the money comes from to fund his music, which seems to be the case for a lot of rappers famously. People like Biggie who dealt drugs in order to then rap. I'm just kind of throwing that in there so you all know that I know some stuff about rap. (laughs) It's like the most basic knowledge. And then Louis being, you know, the concerned teacher, they then have the conversation about how pimping's actually a bit illegal and immoral. It gives them the caveat of, in Britain, (laughs) this is considered illegal and immoral. And then Mello just says, yeah, same thing here. He says that this is the Bible Belt state, Mississippi. So you can go to prison for it. You can get killed for it. So again, why are you talking on camera about this, Mello? Mello has a recording session booked with a producer called Derek. I think that probably isn't a rap name. I think that's just his name. Looking at Derek, he is called Derek. Yeah, Derek is such a mix of genres. He's got these quite nerdy glasses, which would probably be verging on trendy again now. Oversized kind of hockey type jersey. But he seems quite serious, quite sort of studious. He also has Prince posters all over his wall. He's clearly a huge Prince fan. Louis and Derek have quite a serious discussion about how Mello is a real pimp and Derek just kind of says, yeah, you know, he's the real deal. Other people are just studio gangsters, but Mello knows what it's really like. Derek says, oh, he's using it to get out of a situation. And it's probably worth staying here that he's using other people, especially women, to get out of his situation. This is kind of touched on at points, but I feel like we dance around the fact that Mello is not a particularly nice guy and his industry is not particularly nice. So Mello wants to rap with Louis. Louis is nervous. This is where the beginning of Louis's huge mum energy starts in this scene. He's got his hands clasped together like he's someone's mum at a rap concert. And he's just nodding along and smiling as Mello raps. He's also worn the nerdiest outfit. He's got a long sleeve light blue shirt and then khaki trousers on. Standing next to Mello, who looks like a hip hop funeral director in like quite a cool way. Like he pulls it off. Louis looking like he's 
he's fresh from the IT department to come reboot the computer for Derek. But Mello is dedicating his rap to Louis. You came from London just to hear my story. I'm in the hood with the nuts be the glory. Now Louis, I'm in this shit trying to be good. I'm on my way, they say, to Hollywood. I do think he's a good rapper. I think his freestyling is really good. It is, but we get to the point where we should probably be concerned a little bit. So he says, I be pimping all night long to make my paper. If my bitch come and stuck, I've got to break her. Louis just stands there again, nodding and smiling along. Might be nervous, but still. I mean, we're laughing, but we're horrified. Louis starts to try and freestyle back, but basically what he's doing is just asking his normal questions that he would be asking over a music track and nodding as he does it. I mean, he manages to rhyme the words tape and rape. Um, that's about as good as it gets with this. People in London, when they see this tape, they see stories of toughness and rape and ugliness and damage and plain miscarriages of justice. I must guess that... Oh, God, I lost it. I lost it, okay. It's not Kiki D and Elton John, but Mello's happy with it. Louis does look really uncomfortable. I wonder if he is actually very embarrassed that he totally choked. Mello says, we both up in this thing. And then Louis says, yes, well, I'm actually not in it, but I know what you mean. And I think it's Big D in the corner just bursts out laughing, which I found really funny. So then they get into a car and Mello tells Louis he hopes his music will take off in four to five months and then he won't have to pimp anymore and he won't have to be associated with that lifestyle. He wants to leave the lifestyle. He's quite set on that. As they're driving, he kind of points out places where he used to work, I guess, or get business. And he says, oh yeah, all these houses used to be crack houses. Then they go to a street corner, which has many signs that say no loitering. And then there's lots of men loitering there. Louis and Mello are sort of talking about how this is the hood. You know, you write about the hood. Is this the hood? Are we in the hood? Yes, we're in the hood. And all these guys aren't saying anything, look quite awkward. And then Mello says, okay, come on, we should go. We don't want to mess up anyone's spot. And they get back in the car and Louis says, what are those men doing? And he says, well, they're selling drugs. And if we stay with a camera, people are going to think we're police. Obviously, Louis goes back to working drug corners quite a few times in different documentaries. And this becomes such a theme of his later work and later documentaries. But he seems so nervous and a bit out of place. I don't know whether he's asking just for the camera, but to not get that that was a working drugs corner just seemed so odd. Mello says you can't just be a rapper here. You have to do illegal things. They talk about how Louis doesn't have a gangster background and how can he be an authentic rapper if he doesn't have that to draw on. Mello says what he's realised is that everyone has their own story to tell and it's important to just be true to yourself and tell your own story. And Louis says, well, in that case, I don't think I can be an authentic gangster rapper. And then they part ways, say goodbye. Mello, again, very formal, says, Hi, Louis. Have a good trip. It was lovely. Louis is now in Houston, Texas. He gets around a lot of the states in this one. And he wants some help after his fairly shambolic freestyle with Mello to kind of hone his image on what he's going to be as a rapper. And so where you go to pen and pixel graphics, we see the front of their office. It's fairly kind of nondescript at the front. But then you go inside and they've got walls and walls of their artwork everywhere. And these guys are clearly super big in that industry for producing artwork, whether it's posters or album covers. We meet their head designer, Sean Brock, who is a white guy, looks a bit like Andy Garcia, the actor. He's got this kind of black 
linen shirt on and light pants. It's a bit Saturday Night Fever, a bit John Travolta. He's quite short compared to everyone else who we've seen so far. He's got slick back hair. He's not imposing, but he's got a little bit of a tough guy aura about him. Also, the very first white person that's been on camera in the whole episode so far. Apart from Louis, who is painfully white at all times. He was making up the ratio by himself. They go for a tour with Sean and he's showing off all the artwork all over the walls. There is a guy shooting a bullet and the bullet is coming towards you in the poster if you're looking at the poster and your face is being reflected in the bullet. But it's actually Sean's face. Was it Sean's face? That's what Louis says. He says, oh, you can see your face, but it's actually your face. (laughs) Good on him. He saved the budget of getting a model and he's just done his own face. Imagine standing, taking pictures of yourself, trying to look as though someone's shooting you. (laughs) And we will be doing that after this episode for the press shots. Then Sean drops the casual comment. This is a hardhead record. He's in jail right now. For what? Shooting someone? I think it was shooting someone. And life imitates art, clearly is the theme as we're going around this wall. And then Sean's just playing, he's in jail, bingo. He's in jail now, and he'll be there for the next 25 years. This guy's in jail. He's in and out of jail like crazy. Green Wade is in jail for shooting a police officer through the door. These people are back in jail. Sean mentions that one of the acts are in prison now for torture and murder of a lady who they tie to a chair and set on fire, which is just incredible just to casually drop this. I'm not saying that Sean is gleeful about it by any means, but he is very blasé about it. And then Louis has the same reaction as we all would be, which is like, what? That's insane. And you've still got this poster up on your wall. He says to Sean, do you feel any responsibility if your artwork glamorizes that crime side of rap? And Sean says, He feels a little responsibility, but his concern is to make sure that the artwork sells the music. That's his business. Exactly. It's kind of a difficult moral quandary, isn't it? And I like that Louis asks the question, do you not feel bad that you're glamorising this? But Sean clearly knows what sells and what doesn't, and this is selling. So is it being driven by the consumer or is it being driven by Sean? So Louis going to get Sean to do some artwork for him for his rap record that he hasn't made because he hasn't even begun to start rapping yet. So he's kind of doing this the wrong way around, but okay. And he says he wants something a bit more him for the artwork. He's not really into all the sort of guns and all of that. So they start the sketching process. They sit down and they bat ideas back and forth and Sean's sketching the whole time. Louis says his style's a bit softer than gangster rap, but he's... Not someone you want to mess around with. You know, because he might come unglued, but someone who uh, who looks after himself. Whoa there, Mellow T. <laughs> and they brainstorm some rapper names. I think there's Louis Ice or Ice Louie, MC Louie. These are all Sean's suggestions. And then Louie Lou is Louie's suggestion, which Sean thinks doesn't sound hard enough. Probably because it sounds quite like Lulu, the Glaswegian singer. <laughs> And so Louis says, is there any way I could just be Louis Theroux? Can I just be me? And Sean says, I don't think you'd make it in this game, which is some harsh talk, but he knows the market. And then he asks, where's your danger? Come on, where's your danger coming from? Is it from the IRA? From the British mob? Just casually chucking the IRA in there. Louis says the danger is from him. I mean, I would call the police and I'd say, get out of my house or whatever, or leave me alone. I'll get a restraining order. That's the danger you need. This is a man who the Stranger Danger lessons at primary school have worked on. Like, that has gone into his brain. If you need help, phone the police. As soon as he says that, there is this really, like, the office-style pause where no one says anything, and then they just pan the camera back to Sean, and he says, yeah, maybe we'll keep away from that idea. (laughs) And then Louis says, what if, what if, I'm just not that dangerous? (laughs) 
But Sean's got a creative surge. He's got an idea in his head. He likes the television idea. He's going to have Louis in front of multiple screens, essentially, to show he's on the telly. Louis's moving away from danger completely, talking about things he likes. I enjoy a glass of red wine. And then he remembers that he also has a nice computer. We get into dating profile territory here. I have a nice computer. I wear glasses. Little bit of a trademark. Good to know I can use that one, Louis. Thanks. And then, yeah, there's just another long silence, and you can just hear Sean reevaluating his life decisions. Then Louis talks about how much he loves cats at length. Cats, I like cats. Stroking a cat, tickling a cat, stretching its ears. That's nice. And Sean just says nothing. He's just scribbling away on this piece of paper as, as Louis talks about cats. Louis asks why Sean seems to be steering him towards something a little harder, aka Jerry Adams. As Sean gives him the lowdown of how this market works, he says this sells to white 14-year-old girls at the shopping mall who are spending their $40 every weekend on rap music to piss off mum and dad. That is who's making these guys millionaires, which is just a really interesting insight. It's not how you would imagine this music would sell, but obviously makes so much sense. It totally makes sense. These men are not wanting to sell it to 14-year-old white girls, but that is what's happening. So yeah. Yeah, that's kind of crazy to think that it's trying to appeal to little girls by putting guns and scantily clad women on your artwork. It's now time for the photo shoot. They've kind of got the artwork in mind, what they're going to do. So they go into a small white screen studio and Sean's there with the camera. No props because everything's going to be computer generated. So Louis just has to sit on a chair and pose in a way where things can be added around him. (laughs) I said he's so awkward with it that it reminds me of, do you know that meme of the weird stuffed white animal? Yes. That's what Louis looks like. But he's also completely baffled by the fact that there's no props and it's completely computer generated. Welcome to the future, kids. This is the year 2000. Long gone are the days of baseball caps and being happy baseball dad at the photoshoot for his off-Broadway episode. I like that Sean keeps in character here, though. He takes it seriously as like, no, if I was putting you forward for a rapper, you'd have to do this. You have to be super serious, which is kind of good. So Louis does basically what is an angry teenager glaring face. It also looks like one of those pictures from a local newspaper that makes it into angry people in local newspapers where they're like pointing at a pothole with an angry face. Yeah, or their TV bill. Louis wants to meet some other up-and-coming clients who are there. The only person we're introduced to is a guy called Trey, who is a young rapper, and he's doing his photo shoot while Louis chats to him at the sidelines. He says his album is raw, and he says there ain't nothing to smile about. Before he kind of does a little nervous giggle when he's talking. He laughs and smiles quite a lot when they're talking. He started talking about what his rap lyrics are about, and he says, yeah, I'm not going to rap about shooting someone with a small gun. I'm going to rap about shooting people with an AK-47. And Louis says, so have you shot people then? and he says I've shot at people before this is where again the big mum energy kicks in because Louis just standing there with his hands on his hips watching this photo shoot and he says aren't you running the risk that you'll wind up in prison or get shot yourself especially considering you're admitting on camera that you've shot at people before Trey says jail doesn't scare him he's been before and if he gets shot he was meant to get shot and that's just how it is but Louis kind of seems disappointed with him for choosing to go down this path which he hasn't done with Melo he hasn't done with anyone else so far it's just kind of interesting he is quite young i think is true yeah super young we cut to a darkened room sean is in there working his magic away on a big old computer his eyesight why is he sitting in the dark looking at a computer screen that's like the exact opposite of what you're told to do <laughs> he shows louis the finished product his own rap poster i cannot express 
how amazingly bad and good the poster is. It's fantastic, isn't it? It's just so of its era. That kind of thing gets parodied now, but this was an actual style at the time. It's Louis sitting in one of his awkward poses. Sean superimposed a cat on his knee, obviously, because he loves to stroke cats. There are a couple of very scantily clad women kind of clinging on to Louis around him. There's piles of cash being thrown around. There's a butler at the bottom. I think he's serving wine. Interestingly, one of the women is playing basketball in a bikini. She's like doing a slam dunk, but she's in a bikini. And why not? I don't know where that fits into Louis' image. (laughs) He's tall. He plays basketball. Yeah, but we see how bad he is at basketball in this episode. The level of detail, though, I noticed that Sean photoshopped Timberland boots onto Louis's feet. Oh, nice. I'm pretty sure Louis isn't wearing those shoes because they don't seem like very Louis shoes. Louis says, Sean has made him into a cat-loving gangster. And Sean says, well, that's what works. And then they kind of shake hands. Louis's quite happy with it. And he says, the rap chronicle continues, which is the name of his poster artwork album that may or may not be. Obviously, after this, it would be interesting to know what happens to Pen and Pixel as an industry. They have a Wikipedia page, which is really interesting. The company was started in 1992, so they've been doing it for eight years by this point. Brothers Aaron and Sean Brock said the Brock brothers and their staff worked with over 8,000 clients and completed over 19,000 album covers before the company closed its doors in 2003. What happened in 2003 that everything closed? Right. Well, this is the reasons they give for why their business closed down. The brothers cited peer-to-peer file sharing service Napster and the September 11th attacks as a reasons for the closing of their business. I don't really understand why. They just picked two very significant things from the early 2000s and went, yeah, Napster and September 11th. That's why it just didn't work anymore. Apparently this stopped people flying to Houston to view artwork. There was the internet by then. Get an email, just stick it on a JPEG and send it someone. Jesus. But in 2020, apparently they came out of retirement to design the cover art for a new album by 21 Savage and Metro's Booming Savage Mode, it was called. Booming Savage Mode 2. So they're clearly still around, but they kind of retired their business. Bloody Napster ruined everything. We see Louis walking down a street. In the voiceover, he says he feels he's been forced into an unrealistic tough guy image. (laughs) He wants to seek advice from the South's most successful gangster rapper who's doing a press conference that day. Convenient. Almost likely planned this. He's a guy called Master P. We get told he has made $361 million through his rap label called No Limit. We then see shots of a high-budget war-themed music video where he's dressed in an army outfit. He's kind of running through a desert war zone. There's helicopters and things like that. And Louis says that Master P runs his empire like an army and refers to everybody within it as soldiers. Yeah, this guy's clearly a step above the photoshopped posters, isn't he? That music video seems very expensive. $361 million is quite a lot of money, especially 20 years ago. So we go to what looks like a hotel function room, which must be where the press conference is taking place. It's very busy. There's lots of people there. There's cameras, people on phones, people talking to each other. And Louis going to meet a local DJ called Wild Wayne, who's going to help him hook up with Master P. Wild Wayne gives the warmest introduction I've ever seen. He's just so nice. He's so nice. He sees Louis and he says, This is the infamous Louis. Yes. BBC. Yeah, BBC too. Yeah. 
and he says of course he'll introduce Louis to Master P and also by the way he does a segment on his radio show where listeners phone in and rap against someone in the studio and Louis should come in and do that as well couldn't be a friendlier guy Louis kind of mingling and he runs into a guy called Suave Bob I love Suave Bob super friendly very polite he has cornrows he's in a suit and has a medallion round his neck that is the no limit medallion Louis asks if he can touch it and then kind of fingers it and says what does this mean and Suave Bob says it means that he's in charge of all the financial aspects of No Limit he's the CFO effectively so yeah he's in charge of that 361 million dollars I guess this press conference is kind of kicking into action and Master P arrives and there's a lot of people around him. He seems to be mobbed by press as he's walking around this building. Louis kind of standing on the sidelines and then he kind of tells himself off. He whispers to himself, that was my chance. I missed it. Oh God, anyone who's ever had to do Vox Pops or any kind of time pressured interview will feel the pain of that where you're like, oh, I've just got to do it. Ugh, feels so horrible. But luckily he gets into the inner sanctum with Wild Wayne who gets him in on his coattails. Yeah. Yeah, so he is in the room with Master P, but he doesn't get a look in to talk to him. It's a bit of a whirlwind and Master P is surrounded by his massive entourage again and they quickly escort him out and you see him going into the lift and then he's downstairs and then he's outside and there's a stretch limo and you see Louis say, oh, are we all going in this stretch? And then it just drives away without him. Cut to a random gas station somewhere where Louis is sat flicking through one of his magazines, Murder Dog magazine, doing his research, bless him, doing his homework. And he's waiting for a call from Swan. Suave Bob, who's going to arrange this meeting between the two of them. Suave Bob's got his back. So he says he waits just long enough that he's nearly given up and then he gets the call. Ain't that always the way? He gets told he has to go to a suburb of Baton Rouge where he's going to meet Master P at his home and he might have to refer to him by his born name, which is Percy. So Louis gets in the van, drives, gets to this big gated community. The house is absolutely massive when you see it. It is properly like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air family mansion, big white house, big columns at the front. Louis kind of shouts over the fence and suave Bob there and says yeah come on in come around the side louis kind of pauses and says this is the house that rat built just clearly a line he's been thinking about in his van when he drove over and then swipe says it's an american dream and we're living in it and you're standing on it but they talk about the fact that masterpiece a gangster rapper in this very white affluent bourgeoisie is the word louis uses area and suave bobs explains that masterpiece explained to them he is a law-abiding legitimate citizen too he's an entrepreneur he has clothes he has film he has travel which is really interesting masterpiece is kind of the blueprint for what people like Dre and Jay-Z would do in later years. And the press conference is interesting is for his own telecommunications company. It's not for a new record. So he's clearly thinking, I've got to be all things and have lots of different interests. Smart to put your money in lots of places, really. Yeah. So even though Louis is at his house, Master P is still busy doing business and speaking to people. And Louis gets kind of ushered away when he tries to approach him. And he said he'll come and find you when he's ready. So eventually P gets round to him and he takes Louis to a basketball court, which is on his property. Just the size of it is absolutely massive. It's quite weird here where Master P's walking quite far ahead, quite fast. And Louis kind of trailing behind. And there is one other guy there who's part of the entourage. And Louis is calling after P saying like, oh, are you ready? 
around 30. I just turned 30. Like he's trying to find some common ground with them. And then when they get into the basketball court, Master P kind of slows down and stops and looks at him. But he still seems quite uncomfortable and quite quiet, which I was surprised about. Because you'd think he would have quite a big, confident personality. Maybe he just needed to warm up to Louis a bit. Yeah. And also, I think Louis' kind of energy is quite nervous. He's not really asking him a question. He's more like listing off all his credentials. And Master P is just nodding along like, yep, yep, that's me. I have all these things and done all this stuff. And then Louis thinks, how can I break down this guy's barriers a little bit and says, do you want to shoot some hoops? He immediately bottles it though and says, actually, I'm really bad at this. I don't know why I suggested it. One of the things that Louis does point out is that Master P is one of the richest men under 40 in America at this point. I wouldn't say that Master P is a household name. I don't think I've ever heard of him. So it's just interesting that he was so successful, even if it was, you know, just financially. And he's just kind of disappeared from history in a way. Yeah, maybe Master P is that point. Like we talked about the fact that rap kind of gets its mainstream pop crossover in the years going on from this. Maybe it didn't have that yet. And Master P kind of almost not missed his point because he still obviously makes a lot of money and is very successful, but doesn't have that sort of gravitas that names like Jay-Z do, who did it a little bit later. And obviously Jay-Z did the ultimate pop crossover by marrying Beyonce. That's what you need to do. Or do it all with Linkin Park. Oh, he had both sides covered, actually, now that you think of it. That's smart. Jay-Z is a master. He is the king. <laughs> But they get into a chat about the fact that he has all this money and the fact he's so successful now and the idea of keeping it real. What does that mean? How can you be authentic if you're talking about gangster rap? But is that being authentic to yourself? Masterpiece says it's not about being a gangster. It's about being true to who you are. And then Louis, again, nervously scrambling for questions, is asking, why is it mainly black people involved in rap? This felt like a weird, very short moment that then just never got mentioned again. (laughs) Super strange. What P says is kind of strange too. Although, I mean, if you're not prepared for a question like this, it's quite a big one. But he says, "Uh, you've got to get beyond the whole racist thing. We're past that now. And I don't get caught up in the colour. Obviously, we're not past racism now. That's done, folks. 2000 is when we did racism. It was over. But I think from his perspective, there's a lot of nuances to that question. You can't really just answer that in one go. And Master P is a businessman, right? So he's probably thinking about it in terms of who buys his records. And as we talked about before, it can be 14-year-old white girls who want to piss off their parents. So he's probably saying, well, we need to move past that whole idea that this is black music for black audiences. This is music for everyone. So it's like Louis like, well, I've got the race question out of the way. Never need to ask that again. He literally never comes back to it again. And then he just immediately says, some people find it laughable that I want to be a rapper. And P says, yeah, I find it laughable as well, which Louis is quite hurt by. He paints himself in this weird Walter the Softy from the Beano sort of vibe here. Master P shows one of his friends. He gets him to take his top off and he's got true T-I-U written across his chest as a tattoo, not in Byro, <laughs> which stands for the real untouchables. He says that's how you show heart, not really the tattoos, but the commitment to the lifestyle, I suppose, Master P is trying to get at. But this interview feels so stilted and really odd. It feels like what they're actually trying to say isn't said, and what they do say comes off quite strangely because of it. So we get into the house, and this is where it gets a little bit MTV Cribs. God, I bet this tour took ages. It's massive. So there's pool tables, there's like rows and rows of security cameras, big TVs. There's an $800,000 chandelier that says I've made it. It doesn't literally say I've made it, but the concept says I've made it. He has so many huge oil paintings, and pretty much all of them are of himself. Like Louis keeps saying, who's this? And he's like, that's me. That one's me as well. He's got a home recording studio, which that will cost a lot of money to put together. So much opulence, but also Louis does kind of stress, oh, you've got loads of security monitors. You've got more in here. 
So there must be a sense of worry and a sense of paranoia. People know he has a lot of money and they know he has a lot of stuff. So it maybe isn't as relaxed of a life as you might think. Louis asks whether this comfortable lifestyle is damaging to his credibility on the streets. And Master P seems a little bit pissed off by this. It's a good question because it kind of gets Master P to open up. And he says, if you came from the ghetto, your main focus should be making it out, taking your parents out and being something with yourself. If you can't understand that, then you're not real, which is kind of his most profound expression so far. And it's really true. Who is Louis to question, oh, you live in this comfortable lifestyle now. Why can you still make music about living in a poor place? Well, he did, and he can talk about that. Yeah, and you can argue that it's motivational for other people who are in the same situation to see him and to hear him talk about his experiences. So yeah, I kind of understand why he gets a bit frustrated by that. Maybe he doesn't need so many paintings of himself. I don't know. No, maybe you don't need an $800,000 chandelier. I might send mine back. It's not really saying I make it. No, but it's fun to limbo under. Masterpiece parting advice for Louis about the rap game. It's just to be real, be yourself, don't make up any stories that aren't your real life. And then Louis kind of says, oh, I'm going to go on Wild Wayne's radio show and do some rapping. And would you listen to my tape? Maybe you can sign me to make him leave. Masterpiece like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll check you out. I'll check you out. And then Louis in the voiceover as he leaves says he's impressed by P's loyalty to his street roots. Master P after this, his story is really a story of unending success. He continues to do a lot of things and be very successful. No Limit Records eventually becomes new No Limit Records, but that's through Universal Records. So he clearly gets a big deal with this. He's the founder and CEO of P Miller Enterprises. He becomes an actor for a bit. He's in Gone in 60 Seconds, apparently. And he's also in a TV sitcom with his son from 2003 to 2006. It was estimated his fortune was worth $200 million in 2013. Apparently, he's signed two separate NBA contracts in the 90s. So Louis really was messing up when he tried to shoot hoops with him. Yeah, He's someone who's involved in charity work. So he has the P. Miller Youth Centers and his P. Miller Food Foundation for the Homeless. And then in late 2007, Miller got actively involved in politics. He was supporting in voter participation. He was an early support for the candidacy of Illinois Senator and subsequent US President Barack Obama. But if Louis is going to get this lifestyle, if he's going to have his own $800,000 chandelier that says you've made it, you've got to get the lyrics sorted. And he says that he really wants to make sure he raps about his real life. He's taken that on board. To be fair, it's at least two people have told him that he needs to do that now. So to get that down, he's going to go and visit two rappers in Mississippi who are called Reese and Bigelow for help with his lyrics. He is wearing the most offensive shirt. I wrote, this shirt is absolutely abhorrent. The base is like dark grey, but it's kind of sketched as though it's been coloured in with a pencil. And then it's got red diagonally, but again, quite sketchy over it. It looks like a 90s sleeping bag. It's short sleeve as well. It should not be worn. It's a hate crime. This shirt is a hate crime. So Reese and Bigelow are there. They both dress very similarly. It's obviously just the style of the time, I guess. They both got on sports jerseys. They're both FUBU shirts. If you've seen Atlanta, the Donald Glover show, this is a big deal. FUBU shirts are a very big deal in the 90s. They've got chains or medallions, actually. And then they've both got cornrows as well. So they're kind of discussing lyrics and Louis says, do you guys write your lyrics down or do you freestyle? And they said, they always write it down because it needs to come from the heart and you need to think about what you're going to say. Louis starts pinning paper up on the wall like it's a group project at school. I loved this bit. Reese and Bigelow both kind of look at each other and there's like a little smile. You can almost envision the conversation where whoever's put them up for this has said, okay, you're going to go on with this guy and, you know, it might be a little bit lame, but you just got to go along with it. And they're both like, oh God, what are we doing here? But this kind of breaks down eventually. 
They put on the backing track, which they're going to write the rap to, and it plays for a few times through. Louis kind of enjoying it, and then suddenly, either Reese or Bigelow, it's never defined who is who, just jumps down and starts writing lyrics. And we come up with the line. I got to make this money. It's all on me. We got to make this loop. It's all on me. We got to make this cheese. It's all on me. Louis, Reese and Big doing it with the BBC. Louis looks absolutely thrilled. That's half the verse done. It's literally two seconds. Louis clears his throat and takes out a little bit of paper from his shirt pocket and he says, I had some thoughts in the shower this morning. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's ever a good place to start. So he reads out these lyrics, which are... Jiggle, jiggle. I like to see you wiggle. It makes me dribble. Fancy a fiddle? And Reese and Bigelow just sit there quietly for a second. And then one of them just goes, man, Louis Thug. And then they burst out laughing. They're simultaneously shocked at how bad it is, but also that it's like quite dirty. But Louis kind of brings it back to being real. In the back of my fear, don't know if you can see it. And they're confused. Both Reese and Bigelow, what is a fear? Here you have to say a Benz or a Lex. Louis sticks to his guns. He says, you know, I've got to keep it real. And I drive a fear. The suggested compromise is, why don't we do the line, riding in my fear looking for a biat. <laughs> Louis says, I don't think I can say biatch. If you want a boyfriend, I can be it, is another option. And then Riesel Biglow says, you've got some rhyming ability, but we're going to have to help you out. So eventually, Louis does try some bars for himself and he does the now famous, my money don't jiggle jiggle. So they've kept jiggle jiggle, they like that. After he's done, he says, yeah, it makes me feel quite tough. They're clearly really enjoying it. And it was just one of those times where you think it would have been so much fun to be in that room at that point. Just them going through these ridiculous lyrics. One of the guys says, Louis, how do you fit in a compact car? You're really big. And he genuinely seriously goes, oh, the seats go really far back. And then they're like, okay, let's work that in. But Louis is still occasionally throwing in clangers such as a recliner for the vagina. But they both kind of just go silent and they go, Louis, as if he's done something really bad when he says that. They start working other interests. Louis mentions that he loves red wine. This kind of gives them the inspiration for the end, sipping red, red wine in the tune of the... Not UB40, but it was done famously by UB40. They laugh and they celebrate. It's like they've just discovered the cure for the common cold. This room is so elated with themselves. It's very uplifting. And by the time they leave, they're all kind of laughing and shaking hands and patting each other on the back. It's like seeing the background scenes of the Beatles putting together Get Back or something. It was great. Do you think Louis could ever have had the concept that 20 years from now, people would still be talking about that and wearing it on T-shirts? Just this for Reese and Bigelow, though. I don't think they get mentioned enough for how much they helped shape that rap. I know. Who are they? I want to know more about them. I couldn't find much information. They do bits and bobs going forward and they've got a few records out and they're in different groups. They worked a bit with Killer Mike, who is a very big rapper now, but I think they kind of just tick along behind the scenes doing writing. Shout out to the rappers who do that. I feel like a lot of people are very talented and probably never end up getting to air that. I'm sure loads of rappers are listening to this and will enjoy my shout out. No, our audience is actually 14 year old girls who want to piss off their parents. (laughs) (laughs) If that's true, don't say motherfucker in front of them. Okay, so Louis, in theory, is ready now to go on Wild Wayne's radio show, but he says he's quite nervous. Understandable. He goes to the studio and Wild Wayne's already going and they chat on the air. Louis, despite the fact that he works in TV, shouts hello to the audience rather than standing in front of the microphone and Wayne has to remind him that he has to speak into a microphone in order to be heard. (laughs) This is Mr. Award-winning podcast. 
So it turns out that Louis is going to go head to head with collars. He's probably shitting himself even more than he was already. But he kind of plays it down. He goes, oh, so the standards shouldn't be too intimidating because they're just amateurs. And Wayne kind of goes, we do have some really good amateurs here. Don't worry about that. Wayne plays the role of recapping the adventure so far and what his learnings were. They're off air at this point, asking whether rappers need to live the life to rap about it. And Wayne says some do. They want to live up to the image, even if they don't actually want to do the things that they kind of need to do. Wayne, interestingly, goes, I wouldn't want to be a rapper. And he kind of does a little bit of rapping. I suppose it's maybe more emceeing than rapping. But yeah, he clearly has a talent for it. So it is interesting. The caller who's going head to head with Louis comes on the air. Wayne does a little intro where he kind of sets you up and he's like, hey, what's your name? Let's Come on, hear do your... it properly. Hey, you all, what's your name? You're on the radio with your boy, Wild Wayne. And then the caller goes for it and she's really good. You can't hear that clearly what she's saying because she's on a phone, but she's really fast and she's obviously great, very tight. We're already worried for Louis now because we know what he's like. But then Wayne starts to set him up and Louis jumps the gun and he comes in when he's not meant to. And Wayne cuts him off and says, no, 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 Louis, you have to let me do my bit first. That completely throws Louis off. I feel so bad for him. So then they have like two or three false starts where Louis desperately trying to come back. But then eventually he does and he does okay. I said, hey, are you all sitting? You're on the radio with your boy Huawei. I gotta make this money. It's all on me. We gotta get this cheese. It's all we need. I'm six feet two in a compact. No slack. But luckily the seats go back. I got a knack to relax in my mind. I'm feeling fine. And I'm sipping some red, red wine. Louis, you did it! You did it! And Weird Weekend's history was made. Louis looks really, really happy with himself. And then they're opening the lines. People can vote on who they thought was the best. And Louis's cocky. Louis's like, well, let's hear from the people. The YTs were good, though. Like, he's already won. And then at least the first three or four callers are all just like, no, yeah, we like the first one better. Louis's getting quite upset. One caller says, your boy was wrong. So eventually, just when you think he's not going to make it, Louis starts to get the yes votes in. And someone even says he was tight, which I'm not sure if that's true as it took him about four goals to start. But the vote turns sour, Alex, because corruption is at hand. One of the last callers calls in. She goes, oh, I want to vote for number one. And Louis says, but I was number two. Don't you want to vote for number two? And she says, no, I want to vote for number one. <laughs> and then he kind of begs her and then eventually says, all right, I vote for you. And then they go back on air. Louis won by a landslide. By a landslide. <laughs> Stop the count. He's won. And that's what he says. He's like, I've done it. I am a successful white middle class rapper. Done. Job done. And he does get played on one of the biggest radio stations in the area, which is a very good achievement. Wild Wayne is still around. He's still on the radio. He's got a profile on Q93, which is a big radio station. He was giving talks to young performers about getting radio plays as recently as 2019. And then he was working as part of the team on the BET Awards, Black Entertainment Television Awards in 2021. We can confirm with certainty that Wild Wayne is still around. Matt interviewed him for this episode. Wayne shared some insight into the South's hip-hop scene, both past and present, and told Matt what it was like to witness Louis rapping firsthand. I'd better give him a proper intro. Hey, you all, what's your name? 
Wild Wayne is the name. I do radio in New Orleans. I've been a mainstay for a long time, since the early 90s, man. And I've been blessed enough to continue to have longevity doing radio thing because it's gone through a number of different phases since the 90s, obviously. And fans are often fickle, but nonetheless, I've remained consistent constant in community. Probably those three C's have kept me in the ball game for as long as I've been doing it. I've been able to be a cornerstone in the hip-hop game with Southern hip-hop, you know what I'm saying? To have two of the biggest record labels in hip-hop history to come from the 504 from New Orleans with no limit in cash money and numerous other artists is a testament in itself. So I do radio by trade, afternoon drive, and um, a serial entrepreneur, and I do summer camps for kids, and I'm also the PA announcer for the Pelicans. I got a seasoning line. I have a jerk seasoning called the Wild Wayne Don Dada Jerk Magic. Yeah, I do a whole bunch of stuff around here. So when we meet you in this documentary, it's the year 2000, you're at a big press conference for Master P. What was your journey to getting to that point in your career? Well, when I started doing radio, man, it was just really a hustle. You know what I'm saying? I was in college at that time. I really didn't even listen to much radio. I just needed to pay my rent, pay for my books. It went from just being kind of a side hustle to the main hustle. And I found out I was pretty good at it. Cash Money, Baby and Slim, and the Hot Boys, and Juvenile, and Lil Wayne, all these guys who were on the come up at that time, Master P with No Limit Records. He was on the ascent with Mystical and Fiend and himself and Silk the Shocker. And he had got Snoop Dogg. And I was in the middle of all of this, you know what I'm saying? All eyes were on New Orleans. We were like the music mecca at that particular period. So I was in the belly of the beast for all of that. That's kind of how all of that happened. I had the number one radio show in New Orleans. Started doing some syndication stuff. And Master P, he had done an intro for my show. It was like the intro that started my show, and it was called Wild Wayne is Bout It, Bout It. If you know your hip-hop history, like, that was the cornerstone of that No Limit movement. I'm bout it. P had done some stuff in California and returned home, and he did this intro, and I played it every day. KLC did the beat, and every day I would start my show with Wild Wayne, you know, he's bout it, bout it. It got so popular that people started requesting the intro like it was a regular song. And then they made it into a real song. Was this a good year for Southern hip hop? You know, things going peaks and troughs. Where were we at this point? Oh, definitely not the peak. But it was when hip hop was really gaining a lot of steam in the South because it had been hugely relegated to the East Coast and the West Coast. We in the South really started gaining traction due to some unfortunate circumstances with the killing of Pac as a West Coast rap god and with the killing of Biggie, East Coast rap god, there was a void in the game. And Master P and other Southern bosses were all over it. Then there was another generation kind of after that. You know, you had Lil Wayne really as a spark for pushing Southern hip hop to a higher level and pushing hip hop into an even more global level, period. Do you think Southern rap was making space for women in a time where maybe other parts of the country weren't? Um, A little bit, a little bit. You know, New Orleans had some good examples of female rap. We had Mia X from No Limit, who was actually doing her thing real big. You had the Ghetto Twins from New Orleans, who were iconic. You had Casey Red. You had Lady Red doing her thing. You had Cheeky Black. You had Miss T. You had a number of women from New Orleans doing it. 
we were kind of breaking the mold in a business that had been largely male dominated. Of course, you had like, you know, little Kim Foxy Brown, and there were a couple of other female artists around the country that were making noise, Lady of Rage, even some of the earlier New York hip hop females. It wasn't a hotbed for female rap, but they were pretty bold out here. So that encouraged a lot of young girls to get on the nine o'clock props. They knew that this was their time to shine. Like they might not have a record deal. They might not have a video, but the nine o'clock props was such a hugely listened to segment on my show. And my radio station, Q93, has such a large reach. You could hear us in Baton Rouge. You could hear us in Mississippi. You even hear us in parts of the Florida Panhandle, you know, if the weather conditions were right. It was probably one of the only open doors that they could really easily get through. Louis delivers his rap debut live on your radio show, which I don't know whether you know, this is now kind of an iconic moment in British TV. It's shown a lot. There's T-shirts dedicated to this. It's all over the place. What do you remember Wait, about there were T-shirts? Hey, you, what's your name? You're on the radio with your boy, Wild Way. So what do you remember about filming with Louis and him delivering that rap? <laughs> it was crazy, man. It was such a strange thing for us. People say we have an accent down south and in New Orleans, but Louis had this crazy accent and his delivery was so different. Uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun because... I knew like the backstory. I knew he was going to get some help with some ghostwriters. And then he came back and I was like, he's not going to make it through. He's not going to make it through. And I, I really would gong people, flush them down the toilet, or, you know, I'd talk mad noise about them if they were bad. But he got through it. He got through it. And, you know, the crazy thing is that the people were loving it. I didn't think that they were going to be as accepting because it's, it's a tough crowd. Louis starts rapping. I don't know whether you remember this. Louis starts rapping and you kind of cut him off and say, I haven't done my intro yet. And he has to kind of pause and then start again. And you can tell his whole confidence just drains. Do you have any, any regret, any regret about cutting him off when he started? Hell no, it's my show. <laughs> you got to play by my rules on the show. If I get off the beat, then it makes the rapper get off the beat. You know what I'm saying? So, nah, no regrets, no regrets. That kind of atmosphere of rappers having to live up to the lifestyle, the gang lifestyle, is that still the case for rappers today or is that a relic of the past at this point? Uh, no, it's, it's still happening, you know? There's still a number of artists that have not separated themselves from the street life or the other means of employment, let's say. But a lot of artists don't do all the things that they say they do either. A lot of these guys, you know, they're able to create or spin these tales in their hip hop lyrics based upon the vividness of what they see every day. If you grow up in the hood or if you grow up in a impoverished area, there's a lot of things that you see and hear and experience. In a lot of cases, the reason that those stories are so compelling and interesting is because they're so real. When you build a culture, it's usually based, in my opinion, on disparity. It's based upon poverty. It's based upon creating something from nothing. You know, people talk about people 
using the culture improperly because they don't understand what was put into it to make it. And when you try and create a spinoff of culture, it's usually flat. It's not 3D. So unfortunately, a lot of young artists do base their lyrics on what happens in real life. So, you know, you get that dilemma. Is it art imitating life or life imitating art? I think that's how it goes or something like that shit. Louis done. He's achieved his mission, so he can head back now. But before he goes, he's going to go back and see Mellow T just to see how he's getting on. And he goes to Mellow T's house and Mellow's not alone. There are two women there in their underwear, Sunshine and Fantasy, which are probably not their given names. Louis says, this is a weird situation. What's happening here? And Mellow says, oh, Sunshine's a rapper. I'm going to make music with her. And she seems like she's pretty out of it. Yeah. So she wants to go legit. She wants to kind of copy what Mellow T is apparently going to do. And then she says she wants to go legit and get married. Louis says, oh, who too? All the time she's constantly looking at Melody who's in the corner of the room she speaks about him in these like adoring tones the number one my king my savior my Jesus Christ <laughs> and it's quite tough watch Sunshine explains that her album The Boss Bitch is apparently coming out next year Louis asks oh can we hear you do some rapping he says the words can you do a rap in here he's learned all the terminology now can you do a rap in here <laughs> but Melo says oh no 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 she can't do a rap she's still in development stages which feels like he's selling her a pipe dream here this is a very kind of exploitative way of keeping her potentially in his employment Louis is quite openly doubting Mello's intentions here I think he kind of says is this really happening and he says in the voiceover that he really now after seeing this doubts if Mello is actually serious about getting out of the pimping industry they leave the house they go to a field where Mello repeatedly shoots a gun at a tin can and it's loud <laughs> He seems very different here to how he was the last time that we saw him. He seems quite erratic. He shoots the gun quite a few times and then he puts it down his trousers and Louis says, hang on, what are you doing? You shouldn't do that. What if you shoot your testicles off? But that's about all there is for, you know, lighthearted jokes in this bit. Yeah. Then Mello says, I believe in coercive power. That's fear. And sometimes, man, that's the best understanding in the world. Seems like when a woman got a pistol at her head, it seems like she seemed to listen better. Louis says, that's quite shocking. And I, at this point, wrote, fuck this guy. That's a horrible thing to say. That's a horrible way to view the world and view people. That's just awful. Louis says, that's quite shocking. But his face says, what the fuck are you talking about? Louis is asking, why could you not just rap about this, but not live this life? Mello says it wouldn't work for him. Louis kind of tries to compare it to wrestling, where you play this character and you stretch the elements of reality and what's real and what's fake. But Mello says, that's not me. He keeps repeating this over again. Not me, not me. But it's interesting because he says everybody's fascinated with the bad guy. And surely if you're consciously being the bad guy, you are playing a character. He says, you know, I don't care if I die. Nothing bad about dying, especially for the cause. The cause being being bad. And then he says he wants to be a hero like Jesse James and Billy the Kid. So he's got this weird skewed like Western misfit villain working its way into modern gangster rap. He just seems very confused about what he actually wants here. Yeah, they have this really tense exchange and it's all a bit odd. But then Mello says, if you want me to stop rapping about selling crack, then get drugs off the street, get guns off the street. Clearly, he's a product of the environment he was thrown into. And then he drops this bombshell, essentially. He says that his 16-year-old brother was killed last year. He was playing dice and was shot twice in the head. Louis asks his name and Mello says, Kino. And then there's just this silence that follows, which is super poignant. You kind of realise, oh, this is a guy, he's not a nice person. How much of that has been shaped by the lifestyle he's had to live? 
we kind of just leave it there and they say goodbye but it's nowhere near the sort of warm goodbye that they had the last time he feels like a different guy now and in the voiceover louis says that he thinks that Mello has just taken it too far taking this gangster lifestyle too far so Mello, an interesting guy to kind of track down there is an article from a website called all rap news this was written in 2020 and it's titled the godfather of mississippi rap Mello t and it talks about the fact that there is not a lot of information there about Mello t out in the world and the writer says the scarcity of information acts not as evidence to disprove his legacy in hip-hop but is a testament to how far back his era begins the world of digital information was still in its infancy when he was getting into the rap game he had a group called the wildlife society who were assigned to a major record label so he does get that deal and then he has a follow-up group called the children of the cornbread who also had a number of successful albums and now he's this kind of like mentor for up-and-coming rappers in the area he's still alive still going and maybe kind of did get out of the lifestyle which is good to see that's good because i think you would worry from seeing this that he would just descend quite quickly and not care if he got caught up in something really bad that looked like it was only going one way didn't it closing credits we see behind the scenes where actually louis does have some freestyle practice during the filming of this and there are a lot of little bits of louis rapping one that stuck out to me was the one where he just says the word tits repeatedly over and over again before breaking and thinking that is actually too rude he can't say tits he says it about 20 times and then we close weird weekends ends with a rap about tits So Alex, what do you think? Is this good Louis or is this bad Louis? I think this is good Louis. I think we finished on a high where he went to a subculture of a much bigger culture, which is, I guess, the point of Weird Weekends. I had never heard of any of these rappers before, but a lot of them are still very well known and famous. So we kind of explored that. And Louis completed his mission of trying to become a rapper. And he did okay. I think it ticks all the boxes for Weird Weekends. If I'm honest, I think I'm relieved that we're leaving the Weird Weekends format behind now. We have already been putting a lot more ethical pressure on Louis as a journalist in these. And I think he's probably in this timeline getting to the stage where he's realising that he needs to be a bit more serious and push the boundary a little bit more. I agree. I think this is good, Louis, because this is very quintessential Weird Weekends with all the frustrations and all the great bits intact. There's subjects that we kind of brush against, but we don't go into enough detail for to give them the proper amount of time that they deserve but then the scene where he's writing the rap with Reese and Bigelow is so funny and so interesting and he does live up to the task he set and we always said from the very first episode if you go back to the first episode we did we said it is just a weekend how much detail can you get in a weekend I think it's almost like we're graduating now we're ready to move on and I'm sure it'll be very light-hearted the next episode that we do (laughs) oh god should we say thanks for listening together? We could count in. Okay. One. Three, two. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. That's it. That's the end of Weird Weekends, but not the end of All the Way Through. So please stick with us. Our next journey will be into When Louis Met, which is a series. There are going to be a lot of revelations and a lot of weird British culture that we can revisit. Yeah, and a lot of controversy that is going to be stirred up. Thank you to anyone who has even listened to one episode so far. It means everything to us to have so many of you on the adventure with us. It's really appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at allthroughpod for updates. Do you want to sing us out, Louis? I like a pair of tits without being rude. I like a pair of tits that don't want to be crude. A nice pair of tits, if they're big or they're small. I like a nice pair of tits in doing it all. A nice pair of tits, I can see them in the... In, oh, I can't do tits, it's too, it's too rude.